Good morning, everyone. <laughs> welcome to Kesed. I'm really glad you're here, and I want to welcome the folks in the room, and as well as welcome everyone online. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us, and we're really glad to, to be a part of this experience. It's, it's a real privilege and a joy for me. If we haven't met before, my name is Joe, and I'm actually the youth pastor here at Kesed, and I get the privilege, uh, and I'm really excited about what we're sharing today, because uh, we get to continue in this series, Choose Your Own Adventure. Uh, and if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a really quick recap. Danny uh, said we're going to be spending the next eight weeks looking at the Bible through the lens of the choose-your-own-adventure stories from the 80s and 90s. I don't know how many of us have read them, but they're these amazing stories, really, where you're given a fork in the road to say, how do I want to be on this adventure? And the goal was to say, how do we approach that, like, that same idea with the Bible? And so I'm really excited. But before I continue in the series, I just want to give you a quick, two quick updates. One, two weeks ago, we had our hot dog fundraiser to raise funds so that way our students can go to camp. And I just want to update you that it was immensely successful, so much so that every student that wants to go to camp is able to. So thank you all. Yeah. And, and just a quick aside on that, I want to say how beautiful is it that our students are giving a living example that their God will provide for them through your generosity. Really, truly, thank you. The second thing, though, is, is this means we get to open our doors a little wider for camp and more people get to come, which is awesome, but it creates another area of need in that we need a couple extra male volunteers who are willing to come up for the week and be in a cabin with another leader uh, with teenage boys. So if you are at all interested, come let me know. We'd love to have you, and it's okay if it, you're a little bit intimidated because uh, God, that seems to be when God shows up. So enough of that. Uh, we're going to continue in this series, Choose Your Own Adventure, where really the Bible is a story of God inviting us into adventure. And this week, I'm going to use, like every week there's going to be a presenter who chooses one of the books as the title of their talk, as well as the cover to, to approach the Bible. And this week, my title and book is 1982's The Forbidden Castle. How 80s is that cover, by the way? <laughs> It's beautiful. But before I get into the synopsis so you know what the book is about, let me really quick just give you this story. Uh, something you guys should know about me is I was a terrible student in middle school and high school. I was atrocious. I graduated from high school with a 1.9 GPA. And I know instantly the thought that went through the back of your head is, they gave that guy a microphone? <laughs> So, um, yes, I moved around. I went to four different high schools my freshman year alone. So I moved around a ton, and school just in that season of life was really hard for me. And in middle school, there was this experience where uh, if you made the honor roll, then you, that group of students got to go to Birch Bay Water Park up north of Seattle. I used to think it was like the coolest water park ever. I later found out it's kind of dingy and small. It's not as cool as I remember. But the, all the honor roll students got to go to Birch Bay for the day. And if you did not make honor roll, you were forced to stay behind and do like normal school. Like they forced a group of students while everyone else was having fun, making memories, belonging. They forced everyone else to just sit in the classroom and listen. And I remember when all those students came back, how much I felt like 
I would never be smart enough to be a part of that community. I'd never get it enough. I'd never be able to figure it out enough to, to, to be with them. And I thought it was such a beautiful metaphor for me of this forbidden castle because I think oftentimes this is what the Bible feels like. And, and let me explain. The synopsis for the forbidden castle is the cave of time whirls you back to medieval England. You must solve the riddle that leads to the forbidden castle where riches await and maybe even a way home. And let me tell you why when I first read that synopsis, I jumped at the chance to, to use this as my book. Because the thing is, is I wanna focus on three uh, of, those, of those words in that synopsis as a means of explaining what we're gonna talk about. The three words are the cave of time, the riddle, and the forbidden castle. Let me start with the forbidden castle. I think for many people in this room, particularly if you're like me and you didn't grow up in church, Oftentimes, knowing who God is, being a part of a community like this, can feel forbidden to us. It can feel forbidden, like we will never belong with that group of people. We're left on the outside looking in to belonging, to, to the things that we look for to satisfy us, and ultimately to find home. God feels like he's locked away in this giant castle. And if you remember the synopsis, put the synopsis back on the screen, it's still on the screen. Uh, if you look there, <laughs> It says, in order to get to that forbidden castle, you have to solve the riddle. And for many of us, this is the riddle. This book. This book, parts of it written 3,400 years ago. We have to feel like we, a lot of us feel the pressure to have all of this figured out and solved in order to belong in that castle where a king is where home is. And so many of us, if you're like me, feel like I will never know this book enough to be able to cross that chasm into the forbidden castle. And so why bother? The third part of the synopsis is the cave of time, which whirls you back so you can engage with the riddle. And if you will engage with me and indulge me, this will be the cave of time today, okay? We're gonna go back in time. We're gonna really try to unpack what the Bible is because in the hopes for me that you and I can understand that this is not as much of an enigma as we think. This book is not as much of a riddle as we think. And to really kind of unpack what the Bible is and what it's not. Because my hope for you is this won't be a barrier to the forbidden castle, but you'd recognize it's a bridge into it. And so we're gonna dive into that. But before I do, if you are like me and you're like, the Bible is really hard to understand, just in your mind, raise your hand if that's you. Just in the back of your mind, many of you feel that way. I feel that way. And I want to let you know the Bible feels that way. The Bible even recognizes it's hard to understand. Paul, he's responsible for writing two-thirds of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. We'll talk more about it. But uh, he writes 11 chapters in his letter to the Romans on the gospel, and it's probably the closest thing we get to like a PhD, a dissertation, or a thesis statement, like a thesis in, in, of anyone in the Bible. It's such a robust explanation of the gospel. And at the end of this like in-depth explanation, unlike anything in human history, 
At the end of like 11 chapters, he writes this in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Basically, if I had to explain this in modern English, this is what Paul's saying. After 11 chapters of academic explanations of the gospel, he just throws his hands up at the end and it's like, but who can really understand any of this? It's way too above me. It's way too confusing at times. I will never completely know it. And so do we give up? And my goal for today is we don't give up because this is not a riddle that keeps us from the castle where the king is. This is an invitation into the love inviting us into the castle. And we'll explain more what it is, but my goal right now is just, some of this will feel a little bit mechanical, and the goal of this time is to remove some of the stigma, some of the mysticism of the Bible, so that way we can better understand what the Bible actually is. And there are men and women far smarter than me who have, who have been able to explain this, and so we're gonna take a moment and look at a really helpful resource, and we're gonna watch a portion of a video from the Bible Project that really helps explain what the Bible is. We'll talk a little bit more about it. Check it out. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believed that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. 
So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now. A few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff, was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So for the really cool video, right? Uh, and we are only able to watch a portion of it due to time, but that is one of many videos from this organization called The Bible Project, which is a super amazing resource on what the Bible is and how to study it. As a matter of fact, I want to encourage all of you to come back next week because the head animator who works for the Bible Project is a part of our Kessid family, and he's going to come share a little bit more on that resource and how to use it as we dive into this adventure book called the Bible. But I love that video because to me it gave such a clear and concise picture of what the Bible actually is. And the thing is, is if you didn't hear, it's, it's actually a small library of literary pieces compiled together to tell a singular story of how God is going to redeem the world. And so let me just give you a, a quick review of that video in case you missed it. The Bible is actually 66 individual pieces of literature compiled together. We divide it most clearly in two parts. There are about 39 pieces of literature in what's called the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament is, is it's the foundational stories that explain why the world is as broken and, and, and evil as it is. And it, and, and it describes this as this idea of sin. And I like to, to, instead of the word sin, use the idea of self-directed love, that humanity wanted blessing apart from God and apart from relationship with him and, be, and became self-centered, willing to hurt the things and people around us in order to find blessing apart from anyone. And so we run the world into the ground and the Old Testament becomes a look towards God's solution for that problem which ultimately will culminate in this king that's coming, who's gonna restore everything one day. It's gonna make it all right. And the whole Old Testament is looking towards the day that that king comes. The New Testament are, the tw are 27 individual pieces of literature that talk about how Jesus of Nazareth is that messianic king who came to make all things right again. So where does the Bible come from? And um, let me just tell you really quick, it's actually written by 40 different authors in three, on three different continents in three different languages over 1,500 years. 
And I don't want us to miss how miraculous that is. Because most other religious texts in the world are either A, written by a single person or voice, or B, are written by so many different people, but there's no sense of coherent story. So it's just a, a large collection of different stories. The Bible changes all of that. And that it's written by a handful of people over a millennium and a half who write a single coherent story. Like if I asked 40 people in this room or 40 people online to just go throughout the building, not talk to each other, and write a story about a cat, and we read all of those stories together, it would not be coherent at all. Let alone you add 1,500 years to it. Let alone you add language barriers or cultural barriers. Then try writing a coherent story. And yet the Bible was God through his spirit in interjecting himself into individuals' lives over 1,500 years to carry along a story that would build to the fact that he's gonna pursue and restore humanity in his love. And so ultimately, I really love what the Bible Project says. This is what the Bible is. This is their definition. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's not a riddle. It's not this thing that's preventing us from going into the forbidden castle where God is. As a matter of fact, this is a unified story that leads to Jesus and all that he represents. And so I wanna stop a little bit and kind of explain what I mean. Because I think if you grew up at church, you've heard stories about David and Goliath, you've heard stories about Noah and the ark, or D Daniel and the lion's den, or, or maybe you've even heard stories about Jonah and the whale, or if you're like kind of pretentious, you say the big fish. And for some of us, we're like, how in the world are all these stories connected? And every single one is, and it's building to something. And so I wanna kinda show you how the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus and all that he represents. So if you will, for the next couple minutes, let me nerd out, is that okay? I feel like we have this kind of relationship. I can nerd out a little bit. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection to a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke mentions this in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Meaning Jesus took them through the Bible and pointed to every single thing that pointed to him. And basically he was saying, the whole story is about me. But two things, I'm gonna show you how the whole story is about him, but I want you to tuck away in the back of your head just for now that word, the scripture, because it's used a handful of times in the New Testament, used here and Danny taught last week on the fact that all scripture is God breathed, right? And so that word scripture is really important and significant. We'll dive into it in a little bit. But I wanna show you how the Bible is a total unified story that leads to Jesus. Not a collection of, of a bunch of random stories, but one unified one. And so uh, I don't know how many of you would know this, but we're gonna dive into the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. 
If you grew up going to Sunday school, you've heard this story before. But you may wonder, how in the world is this connected to Jesus? It's, it takes place 1,800 years before Jesus is born. And it's written 1,400 years before Jesus is born. How in the world is it connected? And I want to show you really quick, just to prove the point that the whole story is about him. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 22 with me. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And I don't have time. This is going to be a 30,000 feet flyover, just a chance to really demonstrate the point that this is all a story that's unified in the person of Jesus. And I really want you to hear me on this. I want to remove the feeling that this book is a riddle. And rather that in our cave of time here this morning, we're going to remove the riddle so you realize that this book is an invitation into love you could never imagine. And you're not forbidden from entering the castle. You're more than invited. So beginning in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Three things really quick. One, if you have read the New Testament, that a father saying, this is my only son whom I love, will sound familiar to you. And a father who has an only son whom he loves and taking him up to a mountain to sacrifice him will sound familiar to you. And Mount Moria is actually a really special and unique place. It's only mentioned two times in the entire Bible. Once here and once in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, which we all know, obviously, right? Just kidding. No, no. I don't even know it. But uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that Solomon built the temple on Mount Moria. So what that means is, let me read it differently. God is asking a father to take his son up a mountain outside of Jerusalem and sacrifice him there. Now, there's a couple of human sides to this. Why in the world would God ask a father to sacrifice his son? And if you're a parent in here, there's nothing more offensive than that. And we don't have time to really explore it other than for me to tell you this. Imagine the kind of faith that says, God, the thing that I cherish and value most in the world, I'm going to hold with an open hand. I'm going to hold with an open hand and trust that you are who you say you are and that you're good. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He's going to do it. This is the amount of, like, how insane is that faith? And you may be wondering, how in the world does this point to Jesus? Notice this next section in verse four. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. By the way, this is the first time the word worship is used in the entire Bible. And it's about a dad about to sacrifice his son. Because worship is about saying, God, the things that I value and hold on to, I'm going to hold with an open hand to you and trust that you're good. 
you may notice there is Abraham lying. Notice he says, I and the boy are going to go over there and worship, and we are going to come again to you. Is he lying? And what happens, as Hebrews will tell us in the New Testament, if Abraham had such a great faith that he said, God is even able to raise the dead. And so you have a father taking his son up the mountain outside of Jerusalem to sacrifice him, understanding that God has the power to raise the dead. But that's not just it. Notice here in verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the both of them went up together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, if you grew up in Sunday school or, you know, for the folks in here that grew up going to church a lot, you've heard this story. And oftentimes it's read with a very happy ending and a very tidy bow that wraps up the story. And I want to tell you that's blatantly untrue. This, this story ends not on a happy ending, but on a cliffhanger. Because notice Isaac's question. Where is the lamb? And notice Abraham's response. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So both of them went up together. Is Abraham lying? But the question, where is the lamb? It's not just Isaac's question, but it's every Jewish boy and girl's question as they sit around the fire hearing this question for centuries and centuries and centuries. For almost 2,000 years, they're asking this question. I'll show you what I mean. In verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. His son literally has been carrying the wood on his shoulders up the mountain outside of Jerusalem that he is going to die on. And by the way, tradition tells us Isaac's a teenager here. And I'm, I was not a strong teenager by any stretch of the imagination, but I like to think I can overpower a, a hundred-year-old man. <laughs> and so... Isaac is complicit in this story. He's trusting his father. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, by the way, this character shows up a lot in the, New Test, in the Old Testament, my favorite character in the Bible. Anyways, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing how you have not withheld your only son from me. He held his son with an open hand and the greatest act of faith. And that is probably our marker of faith, by the way. As the thing you cherish most, most, are you willing to hold with an open hand and the trust that God is who he says he is? 
by the way, I don't think I have that level of faith at all. But Abraham does. And Abraham in verse 13 lifted his eyes and looked and behold behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And normally when we teach this story, it ends there. But by the way, what was Isaac's question? Where is the lamb? Not a ram. In, in Hebrew, by the way, these words don't rhyme. <laughs> it's less helpful in English. But where is the lamb? That's Isaac's question. So this story doesn't end on a happy note. This, the story ends on we're still waiting for the lamb. And to show you what I mean, look at, look at the next verse in which Moses writes, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord not has provided, not provides, will provide. And notice 400 years later, Moses is still adding, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It hasn't been yet. And so even in Genesis, 1,800 years before Jesus is born, they're looking forward to the day that a father will take his son up the mountain outside of Jerusalem and sacrifice him and be able to raise him from the dead in order to restore humanity. And the question they're asking is, where is the lamb? 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 And you wait until you get to John chapter one, in which John, the baptizer, sees his cousin Jesus of Nazareth walking down the road. And he looks at him and he says, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I share the story because it's just a, an example of the fact that I could take you through Psalms and Proverbs and parables and promises and all of them point to Jesus. And so this book isn't this riddle that is meant to, to bar us from the forbidden castle in which God is. This book is meant to be a description of the story of how God is inviting us into that castle because he loves us. And God literally wrote this story down. Notice in Luke, we're, we're gonna reread Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and it says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said, the whole story's about me and what I'm gonna do and how I love humanity so much I would bleed my veins dry for you. And he did. That word for scripture that I asked you guys to tuck in the back of your head, the, the Greek word there is graphe. And, and, and you hear our word graph in there, but it's really important because it does, it's not just scriptures, it's the writings. It's one thing for a person to tell you that they love you. It's another thing for a person to take the time to write it down so you know they love you. And you may be saying, well, Joe, they're writing down stories of God's love and God pursuing them through Jesus for themselves 3,000 years ago. But Hebrews says something different. Hebrews 11 says, these, as in the people who wrote down these stories, were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for 
us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is every single one of these stories was written down for you and for me, all pointing us to Jesus, the story of Jesus, so we would always be cognizant of God's love. And why was it stories? I'm not saying this to offend anyone in here who's a math whiz, but if I asked you to recite 10 of the equations you learned in geometry, most of us in here would be like, I don't remember any, let me get back to you, right? Says the guy who got a 1.9 GPA. <laughs> if I asked you to recite to me the boy who cried wolf, and some of us have not thought about that story for years, we'd be able to do it like that. Because we are hardwired to remember story. And God chose to write this story down, this unified story that leads to Jesus because he wanted you and me to know that if we ever forget, the God of the universe was pursuing you to the point that he would even be willing to bleed his veins dry for you, and he did. This is not a riddle to be solved so we can belong in the forbidden castle. This is a story reminding us of the love that always invites us into the castle, to be with the king forever. In closing, I, uh, I have a friend who um, I meet with on a regular basis, and he, um, he was, uh, he's a retired law enforcement officer, and he, he has always mentioned to me that when he, he would investigate deaths, and he would investigate lots of them, and, and in every home he went into, without fail, the one thing from people across the spectrum, the one thing that everyone had in common was every single person had saved notes and letters of the people in their lives who loved them and they kept them. Because it's one thing for a person face to face to tell you they love you. It's another thing for them to write it down so you'll never forget that they love you. I wanna show you something. This is a small portion of the collection of love letters I have from my wife, Rachel. And Nine years ago, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> My wife and I have been together for about nine years. And I still remember the time I met her. I saw her in a room like this in a young adults gathering. Um, and I saw her across the room and she was beautiful and I wasn't. And, <laughs> and I saw her across the room and I was like, I'm gonna ask her out on a date, I'm gonna ask her to coffee. And six months later I did. <laughs> Because every time I'd go up to her, I'd just be terrified. And I finally did the stupidest, most courageous thing I've ever done, which is ask her out on a date. And she did probably the dumbest thing she's ever done, which is said yes. <laughs> and I look back on all of these letters, and I kept all of them. And like I said, I have a huge basket full of these letters. And I'll occasionally go back and I'll read each one because frequently I forget how much she loves me. And I go back and I read these letters and I'm constantly reminded of the love, how she pursued me, cared for me, prayed for me. And after about our third date, I knew this is serious. Like this is the kind of person I can marry. And so I decided to do two things. One. 
I decided to go do counseling. Because <laughs> she was the first person that, remind, that really showed me I'd never really addressed my trauma. And so I was like, if, if this is the real deal, I gotta figure that stuff out first. The second thing is, is I was only making about $500 a month as my salary, so I was dirt poor. And I was trying to figure out a way to save up for her engagement ring. And so I decided that three times a week I was gonna sell my plasma. And if you don't know what your plasma is, let me just really quickly explain it to you. Your plasma is the liquid part of your blood <laughs> in which you kind of sit there for two hours, they take your blood out of you, and then they like separate out the, red, the, the blood cells from the liquid, they inject salt water and your cells back into you and then take the liquid part for whatever they're gonna do. And then they give you $50. And three times a week I'd do that for eight months. And I finally went to Shane Company with this envelope from my sock drawer of the money I'd saved up for her ring. And I slid it across the counter and the lady was like, how old are you? <laughs> it literally looked like an eight-year-old who was like trying to buy like a new PlayStation. Like, <laughs> and when I finally proposed to Rachel, and there's the picture of the ring, and when I finally proposed to her, that's the story I told. Three days a week for the last eight months, and here's a picture of me proposing for the last eight months, I gave up my blood for you. Not literally, figuratively, I got it back, but. <laughs> because I wanted her to know that every time she looked at, my ring, at that ring I got her, she would never forget that in all of my pursuing her, and she has a stack of letters like as big as mine of that pursuit, but when she looked at that ring, I wanted her to know that I loved her so much I would bleed my veins dry. And the thing is, for me, it's figurative. But I read these stories, and she gave me this diary of our relationship that she had written from the day we started dating until the day before our wedding, and she gave this to me as her wedding present. And as I read it, I'm reminded of how blessed I am to have someone who loves me this much. And for you and for me, I want us to know that we have a letter of a story of the God of the universe who has been pursuing us since before we even knew we existed and who the story literally leads to him bleeding his veins dry, not figuratively, literally. Bleeding every ounce of his blood dry. Why? For you. And the moments that we question, does God actually love me? We get to read this story and God's like, yeah, of course I love you. I bled my veins dry for you. And as I hung on that cross, I closed my eyes and I saw your face. And the way as I laid on that table at the plasma clinic, thinking about the day that I would get to be with Rachel, selling my blood. Jesus drained his and he thought of you. And this isn't a riddle. 
preventing us from the forbidden castle. This is a letter of the story of the God who loved us so much he would bleed his veins dry for you. And so my prayer is we're on a long journey of discovering what the Bible is and what it has for us. Let's remove the riddle. And just every time we open the pages, may we be reminded of this great love that's been pursuing us. So just as I close us in time of prayer, each week during this series, we're gonna have an adventure verse that just remind us that this book is a book of adventure, of a life with God. And you're invited to be a part. And so for my adventure verse this week, that's, I just wanna be reminded that this book is a letter of the story of this great love. And I'm gonna read you one of my favorite verses to just remind you of it. So close your eyes with me. Because I want you to be reminded that this book is for you. And Jesus thought of you. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, God is love. And when we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. God lives in you. And I don't care what you've done, where you've been, you are not forbidden from that castle. This love has been inviting you into that castle since before you existed. You have permanent residence with love. You're not forbidden. The castle's not forbidden. This way in verse 17, love has a run of the house, becomes a home and matures in us so that we're free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ. You belong, love says you belong, and you have a book reminding you that you belong. There is no room in love for fear because well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment is one not yet fully formed in love. We though, we, you and me are going to love, love and be loved because we're invited into the castle. First we were loved, now we love, because he loved us first. And in case you ever forget, let this letter of this story remind you. Stand with me for closing prayer, would you? Father, I wanna say thank you that since the beginning of time you've pursued us. And thank you for writing down the story of your love in case we ever forget. And I do all the time. And may this story be the thing we go back to over and over and over, not because we wanna live in the past, but because we're invited into the story of love as it carries into the future. And I pray each person here would continue to grow in the understanding of how wide and long and high and deep is your love. And I pray this, Jesus, all in your name. Amen. Hey, everyone, I want to invite you back next week as we continue the adventure. We love you guys. See you next week.